Welcome to the Think Theism Podcast. Today we're going to talk about a problem of New Testament composition called the synoptic problem. Zach, would you like to give us a brief explanation of what the synoptic problem is? Sure. So the synoptic problem is centered on the first three Gospels of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The reason that they're called synoptic is because they tell many of the same stories about Jesus, and they also tell these stories using a lot of the same wording. John, the fourth Gospel, while it tells a lot of the same stories, is so stylistically different from the other three that it's kind of off in its own category. Roughly 92% of John is unique in wording when compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now the reason that there's a problem, or I guess you could say sort of a question behind this, is that this high degree of agreement between Matthew, Mark, and Luke indicates that there's some kind of connection between them, or at least there may be a connection, some type of literary dependence or something like that. So when we talk about the synoptic problem, what we're discussing is the relationship, literarily, between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The issue of literary dependence is kind of interesting, but, but why would we call it a problem? Like, why is that a problem for us? Well, I don't really like the term problem either. It's, it's kind of just something that scholarship has called it. It's really more of a, a puzzle that's looking to be solved. Now, depending on how you solve the synoptic problem, what explanation you give for these uh, interconnections, that's going to have an impact on the way that you understand the Gospels. Impact as far as historical reliability, uh, the date that they were written, um, and perhaps even the exegesis. That is to say, the way that you interpret these Gospels can be um, impacted depending on where you think that they came from or how they were written. Okay, so we want to understand how the synoptic Gospels are interrelated and if there are, is any literary dependence. So what biblical data textual data do we actually have to work with here? A lot of times people just start throwing out theories like, oh, you know, there's this Q document, and oh, well, Mark was being copied by Matthew. Before we even dive into that, you're right, we have to look at the data. And so there are three main areas of uh, data that we have to look at. The first one is what's called the triple tradition. And the triple tradition is approximately 500 verses that tell the same story and have very similar wording that are shared between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them. So that's the triple tradition. The second area is what's called the double tradition. And double tradition is a group of about 200 verses that's shared between Luke and Matthew. Uh, Ma Mark and Matthew and Mark and Luke also share verses with each other, but not as much as Luke and Matthew do. So the double tradition, we specifically mean the verses shared between Luke and Matthew. And then the third area is what's called the special material. And this is what's unique to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, Luke has the most unique material. Roughly uh, half of Luke is completely unique. Matthew has the next largest amount of unique material, roughly a third. And then Mark only has about 50 verses that are unique to Mark. So what are some examples of verses that fall into these three categories? One of the most common examples for the triple tradition is the leper that Jesus healed. This is found in Matthew chapter 8, Mark chapter 1, and Luke chapter 5. In Matthew 8, the story goes, A leper came to Jesus, knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy was cleansed. 
Mark has the exact same story. A leper came to Jesus and said, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And then Luke has the same story. When Jesus was in one of the cities, there came a man to him full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. So it almost sounds like I'm reading the exact same thing, uh, particularly the dialogue between them. So that's triple tradition. Double tradition, uh, some of the examples are particularly parables. So the parable of the wise and foolish builders, which is found in Matthew 7 and Luke chapter 6. And then special material is very is the unique material. Here, since most of it, since Luke has the largest area, the majority of special material is found in Luke. So the Good Samaritan is an example of something that's only found in Luke. The parable of the Ten Virgins is, the, uh, is an example of something that's only found in Matthew. So how do we explain all of these? What are the different theories to explain the data that we just discussed? There's a New Testament scholar by the name of Rainer Reisner, and in his estimation there are roughly 22 independent theories on how to explain the synoptic problem. And we're not going to go through all of them, so um, we're just going to survey the four most popular ones. The first one is the independence theory. And this one essentially says that the alleged dependence between the Gospels is just that. It's alleged. It's apparent. Um, and, but these documents were written by independent authors who did not uh, talk to each other or borrow information from each other. The second view is what's called the two-source theory, or sometimes called the Q-source theory. That's auditorially confusing. But essentially what it says is that, that Matthew and Luke each used the same two sources. And those two sources were the Gospel of Mark, which was written by itself, and a hypothetical document called Q. The third view is called the Farer Hypothesis, and it's very similar to the Q source theory in that Mark was written first, Matthew used Mark, and Luke used Mark, but there is no Q document. And instead, Luke borrowed from Matthew as well. And then the last view is what's called the Griesbach view. It's the exact opposite of these other ones. Matthew was written independently, Luke was written independently, and then Mark took Matthew and Luke and compiled them together into one common gospel. How are we going to assess how well these theories actually explain the data that we're discussing? There are four main criteria that are used to evaluate pretty much any theory. The first one is explanatory power, which is to say how well or how strongly does the theory explain the data. The second one is explanatory scope, and that is how much of the data is explained by your theory. The third one is plausibility, which is to say, given our background information, are we appealing to things that actually make sense? Or are we appealing to something that's totally bizarre? Is it plausible? And the last one is ad hocness, or degree of ad hocness, and that is to say, how much is this theory just creating new entities to explain data, and how much of it is sort of naturally occurring? Another way to put this is, is this theory contrived just to fit the data, uh, or is it naturally explaining the data? Starting with the view of literary independence, what are the strengths and weaknesses of each of these theories? The view of literary independence is to say that the apparent dependence between these documents is just that. It's only apparent. It just appears to be that way. But in reality, the reason that they're so similar is because, well, they're telling the same story. All three of these Gospels followed, or the writers of these Gospels followed Jesus around for his ministry. 
They were all there for it. They all saw it. And then they wrote their own eyewitness accounts. And it seems natural to say that if you have an eyewitness account and several eyewitnesses observing the same event, they're going to be very similar. Now, the problem with that is it sounds good at first. It really does. And to a certain sense, I do have a lot of sympathy towards this perspective, mostly because I think that a lot of times people will overstate the degree of dependence between the Gospels. For example, the story of the leper, there was a conversation there. Is it really that surprising if they use the same words uh, in a conversation, you know? But the problem here is that whenever we start talking about the explanatory power, outside of dialogue, these gospel writers are using these same words to describe events as well. They're saying the same thing happened. And that's whenever things start to get a little wonky for me. Because it, does seem to, it doesn't seem to explain very well why these gospel writers are using these same adjectives, the same nouns, in non-dialogue contexts. But as far as explanatory scope goes, it's perfectly fine. It explains all of the data. There's no data that's sort of sticking out saying, you know, why isn't this being explained? And as far as plausibility goes as well, it does seem very plausible that you're not, you're not appealing to something weird by saying that three eyewitnesses wrote down what they saw. That's very plausible. And also, as well as ad hoc, you're not multiplying entities or adding explanations or anything like that. Again, to restate, the only problem with literary independence is that it does not seem to explain the non-dialogue similarities with a lot of power. So if we decide that the view of literary independence is insufficient, then we have to go to a view of some sort of literary dependence between the Gospels um, does that introduce any other problems into the mix? It, it does, and to put it in these terms, the strength of the independence view is literally directly dependent. <laughs> it's going to correlate exactly to how strongly you believe there is a dependence. So I'm not convinced that there is a dependence between them, but I'm also not convinced that they're independent either. And so that's where the question becomes. But once you assume that there is a dependency, that is, that these documents are using each other or they're using the same sources, you're right, there are a host of other issues that come into play. One of the most important ones is the question of priority. That is to say, which gospel was written first? Because if you're going to say that one gospel is using another gospel, it seems pretty natural to say that one of those was written before the other one. And so to answer that question, or to get a good theory, you first have to answer the question, which gospel was written first? Now that we've assumed literary dependence, then, what is the leading theory? Once you assume dependence, you're looking at two main theories and then a host of uh, a smorgasbord of a bunch of minor ones. The most popular one is what's called the two-source theory, which I alluded to earlier. And essentially what this one says is that Mark was written first. So that's our question of priority. Matthew and Luke are independent of each other. Matthew uses Mark. Luke uses Mark. Matthew and Luke, they have that overlapping stuff. Remember the double tradition? And so the way that that's explained is there is another document called Q. And Q is, it's just a variable. It's just like a hypothetical document. But in this document contains all of the, uh, the parables and the teachings that Jesus gave um, that are shared between Matthew and Luke. So some examples would be the Beatitudes, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, some of the other parables that we alluded to earlier. Now, as far as explanatory power goes, it's, it's a pretty good explanation, I would say. It explains the data sh shared between the triple tradition, so all three Gospels, is, that's explained pretty well. And then the double tradition, you have this Q document, 
which it does seem pretty pretty strong. It it does explain it fairly well. Now the problem that we're running into is with the plausibility and the ad hocness. Is it plausible that there's this other document? It's not outside the realm of possibility, but there but it is a purely hypothetical document. That's that's where the problem is. There has never really been any evidence, hard evidence, manuscript evidence, uh, exhumed or discovered, leading us to believe that there was a separate a separate Q-like document. And so this is where you start wandering into the ad hoc region. It's not exactly ad hoc, but you have to say, you know, we don't have any evidence for this. Do we really want to include something that we don't know exists into our explanations? And so that's where the contention is going to be. So people from the independent side, they're going to say, oh, you're just making up documents to explain stuff. Um, but then the, the other people may be saying, you know, we can explain this double tradition without inventing a whole new hypothetical thing. What about the Farer view that you alluded to earlier? Right, so the second view, it's going to be almost identical to the Q source theory. Mark is written first, Matthew uses Mark, Luke uses Mark. But instead of positing that second uh, Q hypothetical document, the Farer hypothesis says that Luke also used Matthew. So the reason that there's a double tradition is that Luke is pulling certain documents or certain information from Matthew, and that explains that uh, overlap there. So as far as explanatory power goes, I'd say it's a little bit less than the Q-source document goes, just because it doesn't really explain a lot of the things that we look at. Um, I'll, we can talk about it more later, but one of the big ones is the Sermon on the Mount. So you can see that in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount is a tightly compact discussion of blessed be, blessed be, blessed be, etc. Luke has that same information, but it's spread throughout the gospel. You have to ask this question, why would Luke, if he were using Matthew, take this tightly compact sermon and throw it all over the place? As far as explanatory scope goes, it's about the same. It's a little bit medium, I'd say. Uh, it's essentially the same as the Q-source theory. Plausibility, though, this is where it edges out the Q-source, because since all the documents it's alluding to exist for sure, and we have evidence for it, you're not positing any hypotheticals or any possible documents. Everything that you're dealing with, you know exists. So the debate between the two-source hypothesis and the far hypothesis is going to center on, does Q explain the data very well, or does Luke, using Matthew, explain the data? So one of the common touch points is the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who are persecuted for my name, etc., etc. Now, pretty much everyone agrees that the Sermon on the Mount is a summary. It's way too dense, and it's also too short to be the full sermon. Now, if Q exists, then the sayings that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount would be in Q, assuming that Q exists. So Q theorists say that Matthew took the information from Q and put it all into one sermon, whereas Luke took the same information from Q and spread it throughout his gospel at different points in time. So there, are, there will be one sermon that Jesus gives, and he gives one of the Beatitudes, and another sermon where he gives another one. So that's the two-source explanation. But the far hypothesis, again, is saying that Luke is using Matthew, that Luke took Matthew, took the Sermon on the Mount, and broke it up and spread it throughout the gospel. And so a lot of people will argue, people that are in favor of Q, will say, this doesn't make any sense. This is, quote-unquote, unscrambling the egg, as uh, 
some, as I believe Martin Goodacre has put it. And essentially what it's saying is that you're taking a beautiful piece of ethical literature, breaking it and throwing it to the four winds throughout your gospel. And so it makes much more sense to think that Matthew and Luke were independently using the information. The other issue, and this is the one that I find the more convincing, is what's called alternating primitivity. So if you remember in our episodes on the textual reliability, we've talked about how scribes over time will tend to be more pious in their language. So they may say, uh, he walked down the road, Jesus walked down the road, um, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, walked down the road. You know, So over time, it gets to be more pious. The implication is that uh, language that is less pious, that's tend to be more primitive. And whenever we look, we see what's called alternating prim primitivity. Matthew will use a more pious term, for example, call Jesus, the Lord Jesus walked down the road. But in the same story that Luke is using it, he just says, and he walked down the road. And it seems more likely Luke is not using Matthew and removing the pious language, but rather they're working with the same material, but Matthew is adding the Lord Jesus, and Luke is leaving it as original, saying he walked down the road. A concrete example of this is in the Lord's Prayer. If you read in Matthew, it's the one we're more familiar with. It says, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Whereas in Luke, it starts off just with Father. And so, Our Father who art in heaven is a more pious term and m less likely to be primitive than the simple Father formulation that's in Luke. It doesn't make sense, then, if Luke is using Matthew to somehow pull out the more primitive wording. Those are two arguments, the two most popular arguments that are in favor of Q. But what about for Farrer? One of the more interesting arguments is developed by a fellow named Martin Goodacre, who is probably the leading proponent of the Farrer hypothesis. What he calls it is what's called an argument from editorial fatigue. And that is to say that the gospel writer, in this case Luke, starts writing a story from Matthew, but he changes the setting. So for example, if Matthew had the scene where Jesus was teaching set in a mountain, Luke may change it and set it in a plain instead. And so he starts off and he's uh, writing the words from Matthew, but as he goes on, he gets tired and he misses something that is indicative of a mountain. Jesus went out on the plain, he spoke to the 5,000 people there, and once he was done talking, they all walked down the mountain into the city. But that doesn't make any sense if it's set in a plain. And so the way that he likes to put it is sort of like a continuity error. One of my favorite examples of this is um, in the office, Michael Scott writes a script called Threat Level Midnight. And initially, one of the characters is named Dwight, but he made a typo and called in one of the areas and called it Dwit. And whenever he went back to change the name, he changed the name to something else. I don't remember uh, what it was. I think it was Sam. He went back and he changed all the Dwights to Sam, but he left one of the Dwights in there originally. And so then Dwight, whenever he went to read over the script, he was reading Sam, 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 the idiot, Sam, the idiot, and then Dwit, the idiot. And it exposed that that was not the original wording. And so that's the argument for Farrer. It's saying that some of the same stories that are in Luke and Matthew, Luke is writing, but then he sort of quote-unquote messes up and accidentally reveals that he has another source behind it. How do some of these arguments impact um, our understanding of the reliability of the text if there are um, these continuity errors, of you, as you've talked about? It depends on what you mean by reliability. If you want to talk about the general, you know, the broad strokes of Jesus, what did he do? What was the life that he lived? These types of things don't really matter because they're minor. 
whether you read Luke and if Luke is borrowing from Matthew, you're still going to get that Jesus was uh, a man who believed he was God, who was an iterate preacher in Galilee. He practiced exorcism in his ministry on earth. He was crucified. He was dead, buried, and that his disciples believed he rose from the third day. They, uh, they're not really affected by this continuity error thing. But I do think that it dilutes some of it. It dilutes some of the power because Luke is not working on independent material. Rather than having two independent witnesses to the life of Jesus, you really just have one witness, namely Matthew. And then Luke, by borrowing from Matthew, is not really uh, giving you any extra historical information. So now we've talked in some detail about three different views, um, but you mentioned a fourth earlier. What is that fourth view? So the fourth view is what's called the Griesbach view. And it says that Matthew and Luke were written independently, and then Mark went back and he took the parts that Matthew and Luke agreed on, wrote those down as sort of a conflation of the two, and then that's what became the Gospel of Mark. As far as assessing it, this thing fails on pretty much almost every account. As far as explanatory power, it's very low, because it cannot explain the double material, or the double tradition material. It only explains the triple tradition material. You have to ask the question then, why did Mark leave out this huge chunk of information that Matthew and Luke thought was important to include, but that Mark thought, eh, we don't need to do with that. Explanatory scope is also low for the exact same reason, because it doesn't even try to explain all the data, and the data that it does explain, it doesn't do very well. So the plausibility here is is sinking, because while I don't really like sort of speculative psychological arguments, you have to look at Mark as being a totally incoherent editor. Because he's going in, he's saying, oh, you know, the Beatitudes, yeah, we don't need any of that. No Beatitudes in Mark. Let's toss that out. Uh, no Sermon on the Mount or anything like that. Um, let's see. Oh, the parable of the Good Samaritan? No, we don't need that. Let's just toss that out. Any parables? No, nope. throw all that out. We just want the historical narrative of what Jesus was doing, but we don't really care what he had to say. The other thing, too, is that the special Mark material is really weird. It's stuff that you wouldn't expect a guy to put into his document. So, for example, uh, when Jesus lands in Gennesaret and casts the demon out of the man and into the nearby pigs and they go and drown in the sea, that's kind of an odd story. It's historical, yeah, but you have to look at Mark as saying, I don't care about ethics. I don't care about the Beatitudes. Throw that out. But the story about pigs, well, that's, you know, that's, that'll sell. So let's throw that in there. And so the Griesbach hypothesis, to me, just really doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So what is the take-home message? We've talked about these four different views, given all this different information. What does this really mean for the rest of us who aren't just really interested in this particular issue? A couple of things to consider. The first one is you can encounter this in an apologetic context. Sometimes atheists or non-Christians or anyone who's trying to disparage the reliability of the New Testament may come up and say something like, you know, well, you've just got one document, Mark, and then you got a couple of guys that are copying him, and we don't really know where they came from, kind of a thing. And it's important to be familiar with the issue so that if you're ever thrown that curveball, you can respond and say, these are the relationships between them. Many times this is bandied about as some type of knock to historical reliability, but in reality, most people do not dive in deep enough to understand what the actual data that's being explained is or what the relevances in any type of a way. The main question here is, is there actually a literary dependence between these Gospels? The funny thing is that whenever you look at it, it's assumed. Any New Testament book you pick up, pretty much, any New Testament textbook, it's going to assume literary dependence between these. 
And then they're going to try to explain it after that. But that's something that I'm not really sold on. If you look at it like intuitively, it, it kind of seems like there may be some dependence because they are really close together. But I don't really think it's a good idea to just take your first impression and then uh, move on with that and say, oh, well, it's so obvious that they're uh, connected. The literature out there is overwhelmingly dominated on which of these theories is the best. And I think that the, the literature really needs to be focused on is there actual literary dependence here that needs to be explained in the first place. Now, by the same token, though, I'm also annoyed by certain people that are, I guess, hyper-conservative or more reactionary that would say, well, of course they look similar because they're all telling the same story and there's no dependence, so just calm down. I think that's kind of naive to just sort of dismiss this issue. And so I'm on the fence because I haven't really found a, a rigorous treatment uh, to say whether or not there is dependence or not. And quite honestly, I think it's almost an unfalsifiable question that anything that you say is going to be so informed by your presuppositions, any evidence that you marshal saying that they're independent could easily be marshaled in saying well, that they are dependent or explained away depending on where you're coming from. So if there is a literary dependence between these, what are the implications of that? Does that affect our theology? Does that affect our understanding of the reliability of the text? Uh, what does that mean for us as Christians? There are two main areas that I can think of where this becomes relevant, and I alluded to them earlier. The first one is whenever you start looking at historical evidence, it can weaken the case. It doesn't mean that there's something in there that's false, but one element of, a, of historical analysis is what's called multiple attestation. And multiple attestation says that if you have several documents telling you the same thing and they're independent from one another, that increases the likelihood the likelihood that that event actually happened. So whenever you're talking about the historical Jesus and you're dealing with these documents, if there's a degree of dependence between them, then they don't really count as, uh, it's not really multiple attestation. So for example, if Matthew and Mark both say the same thing about Jesus, but Matthew is using Mark, then it's not independent attestation. Multiple attestation, but not independent. And so that decreases the strength of your argument for, uh, for historicity. The second one is specifically for Christians. This is going to influence the way that you interpret uh, the differences between the synoptics. Because if you're assuming an independent view, you can say, why did Luke choose to word it this way, whereas Matthew chose to word uh, the event this way? That would be like an independent view. But if you're, say, a farer hypothesis guy and you think that Luke was actually using Matthew, then the question is, well, what was Luke thinking when he changed Matthew? That's going to make a very big difference on your exegesis. What about the specific issue of biblical inerrancy? That's a thorny topic in and of itself. I would say that there, there are some implications specifically for the farer hypothesis. I think that if you're going to use those continuity errors or uh, the editorial fatigue argument in favor of the Farah hypothesis, I think that's going to influence some of your view of inerrancy if, if you hold to that. Because you're going to be in a position where you have to say Luke wrote down something that was literally false. Matthew says something happened on a mountain. Luke said it happened on a plane and then said it was on a mountain. So he is changing a fact that is in Matthew. Broadly speaking, those types of errors... I don't think that they are going to affect inerrancy in the broad sense, in the sense of, you know, 
do these documents give us uh, reliable historicity? But if you're going to take the more conservative line, specifically like the Chicago Statement on, an, on Inerrancy, then you can't really affirm it, I don't think, um, if you're going to hold to what's called plenary, plenary inspiration, that the actual words on the text are inspired. Because you would have to say that the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to mistakenly list a mountain. The position that, that I take, right now I've been a little neutral, if you had to force me into a camp, I would take the uh, the Q source hypothesis. Matthew and Luke are independent of one another, um, and they both used Mark, and they both used an independent document, Q. But I don't hold that strongly, and I think that there are problems with it. The one position that I think is absolutely untenable is Griesbach. It just doesn't explain the data in any consistent way, uh, as far as I can tell. Even though, I mean, there is a book that's recently coming out that's supposed to be the defense of Griesbach. Apparently, the last remaining scholars that hold to this uh, view are going to be putting out a defense. And the far hypothesis, you know, it is simpler than the two-source hypothesis, which does, uh, it makes me sort of sympathetic in that way. I, I do think that Luke using Matthew does create some problems, and I also don't think that it actually explains the double tradition as well as, the, uh, as a Q document does. It seems to me that Luke would be making so many weird changes to Matthew that, to me, intuitively, it just doesn't. Uh, stack up. So I know that that's not really a strong argument, but again, like I said, there's very little as far as rigorous analysis, well, what I think is rigorous proper analysis of, of these um, issues. So to summarize, the synoptic gospels are either literarily independent or literally dependent, and it's not completely clear whether they are literarily dependent or not. And furthermore, if they are dependent on one another, there are numerous theories to explain how they depend on one another. Each of these theories has different strengths and weaknesses, some of which uh, may affect biblical inerrancy um, and reliability, others which may not. Um, so it seems to me that to be able to make any decisions on these issues, it actually takes a lot of thought and a lot of understanding on this issue. And furthermore, not all theories and options may be open to someone who holds to a position like biblical inerrancy. There are a number of good resources for anyone who's interested in this issue. Is There a Synoptic Problem? Written by Ita Linerman. Uh, this is a book that discusses the issue of whether a literary dependence between the synoptic gospels even exists. There's a book called Synoptic Problem, Four Views, by multiple authors that compares and contrasts a number of these views that we discussed today. And finally, there is a book on the Ferrer view called The Synoptic Problem, A Way Through the Maze, written by Mark Goodacre. Uh, with that, we thank you for listening to the Think Theism podcast. Hope you listen again in the future.